Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest is Mara Glatzel. Whether it is showing up for the hard work of self-loving or sharing our ferocious truths, Mara Glatzel is there with laughter, honest wisdom, and the perpetual reminder that we are each enough. A writer, intuitive guide, and coach for women who seek to take back their own personal space in the world, Mara honors herself with clarity and raw truth and honors the universe by trusting her yes and her no. Mara, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm really looking forward to talking about your work and the way that writing comes into the work that you do as an intuitive guide and as a coach and as a woman who shows up and says yes and no when it feels right to do each. So to start off, what is writing for you? Writing is my heart in hard copy. It's the way that I most easily and most fluidly share the things that are happening in my internal landscape with the world around me. So it's kind of one part truth telling, one part self-expression, and one part reaching across the great divide and connecting with other people around me. Mm. Absolutely. You share a lot of writing on your site and also, uh, one of the places I love to connect with your words is on Instagram. But I'm wondering, you recently wrote a post uh, called The Loophole, and I was hoping you could share that with us now. I would love to, although I will admit to you, though I enjoy writing so much, reading aloud is one of my top fears. So I will be uh, navigating that for you during this piece. All right, so the piece is called The Loophole, Self-Trust, and the Story of a Tattoo, and it is in four parts. When I was a child, I dreamt of briefcases, commutes, and travel coffee mugs. I would find myself whipped up into a lather contemplating 401ks and benefits. I was the kind of child that dreamed of a stable income and a nine-to-five job. I was a kid growing up on the tip of Cape Cod, where people cobbled together a living and spent much of the off-season on unemployment. I was a kid that was raised by artists and drag queens and in-between sets of waves. In thinking back to my early adolescence, I searched for judgment or fear or wondering why it was that I so deeply yearned for this kind of stability. I hadn't really seen it anywhere in person because these kinds of jobs just don't exist on the tip of the cape. A stable income and health insurance meant safety, and above all else, I wanted to be safe. I wanted to build a life that I could trust in, a life where there weren't many surprises and I felt delightfully competent. The people that I knew were always worried about money. I didn't want to be worried about money. I never dreamed of being rich, but I had married the idea of having enough to support myself and my family with the idea of a job that was safer and more regular than the jobs that adults possessed when I was a child. 
I dreamed of the simplicity and ease of it all. Someone else to tell me what to do and me doing what I was told well enough that I rose through the ranks of my dream organization. And so I put one foot in front of the other, working my way through my undergraduate and graduate degrees, readying myself for the day when I would suddenly understand business casual clothing, possess the right footwear, and begin. Looking back on this time, I don't think that it was only a fear of not being safe or not having enough money. Deeply embedded within these thoughts and feelings, I notice a lack of trust in myself. I'm not sure that I trusted in my own ability to cobble it together, an act that always seemed to require more charisma and self-assuredness than I possessed. Looking back, I feel the deep reservoir of doubt that I had in my own self-worth. What was I good at? What did I like to do? I was proficient at most things that I tried my hand in, but I was afraid of being left to my own devices. I was afraid of standing on my own and being seen as I truly was. I was afraid of people noticing me or what it was that I was doing. I diligently put myself on the track not to make any waves. I put myself on the track to be good and do well, to not put myself in any sort of risk. It worked for a time. It worked until I started feeling restless beneath my skin. It was 6 a.m. and I was in a hotel in Vermont in January. As I woke, my eyes were scratchy, swollen from having cried all night long the night prior, as evidenced by the mountain of tissues on my bedside table. The conversation, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this either. Mara, if this was the last year of your life, what would you do with it? I wouldn't become a social worker. I would start my own business. And there it was, the truth I couldn't avoid any longer. I'd been feeling the panic rising for months at that point. Every time I thought about getting a job, every time I thought about graduating from social work school and heading out to the real world, every time I imagined my schedule filling up. I told myself that I had made a promise to myself when I went back to school. I had made a promise to Cookie, and yet I couldn't deny my own truth any longer. The most powerful words that a person can utter are, I can't do this anymore. It is the truth beneath the excuses and the palpable melodrama. It is the truth beneath the noise. When we get to a point where we are able to admit to ourselves that we are unable to move forward on the track that we have been moving, we have two choices. Summon all of our bravery and make a dramatic change, or stuff our truth back down, pushing it away. Filling ourselves with something else, anything else. TV, food, sex, drugs, alcohol, a string of meaningless relationships. At this point, I had already been stuffing down my feelings of discontentment and fear for months, years. That choice may work for a time, but it will not work forever. Your truths will be there waiting for you when there are no distractions left to occupy your mind. After two years accumulating over $100,000 of debt and being told repeatedly that I would need to shut down my website and my online identity if I was ever going to be a respectable therapist, I made the decision not to become a respectable therapist. I felt the day weighing on me as I trudged around Portland in the heat in the middle of July. In my head, my admonishments ran on loop, must attend conference. You paid for the conference. My heart beat out the old good girl story. Finish what you started. Do the right thing, even when it comes at a cost to you. Be steady. Be reliable. 
I wanted to be reliable. I wanted to play it safe because safety was nice and cozy and the decision to keep doing things the way that I always had been. If I was really honest, I would have told myself that I was preoccupied with the idea of getting a tattoo, my second. I had woken up that morning consumed with the tattoo. I felt the pressure weighing down. In that moment, it occurred to me that if I didn't get the tattoo I had been dreaming of right that second, I would crawl out of my skin. It occurred to me that the permission involved was in the act was as much of a test as anything else. Even since I had made a practice of breaking my own rules and carving out space for myself, I realized that I had been accepting no as an answer in so many areas of my life and whittling down my vibrancy. It had been two years since I said goodbye to the life I had always imagined. Two years when I decided to craft a life where I could get a visible tattoo on my arm on a random Saturday afternoon. Two years and I still felt like I had to ask permission from my partner, from my mother, from the world around me. I still felt like that woman who forfeited her freedom. I felt that old trap of following following the path and putting my trust in the way that things had always been done instead of trusting myself and my spirit. There had been so much of my life where I yearned for a tattoo on the inside of my wrist or my forearm, but I told myself I couldn't because should I want to get a real job, it might be a liability. This is not how I want to live. I want to live a spirited life, a wild life, a life of my own. So instead of saying no, I said yes. What's with that hexagon? The TSA agent asked when he scanned my ticket. Are you planning to fill it with something? What are you leaving that space open for? It's a space for the Holy Spirit, of course. I'm leaving it open. I laughed. He laughed. I told people that for a while when I first got the tattoo. Intrigued that people seemed consumed by filling the space, often stopping to ask me what my plans were for it. What is it in us that makes us want to fill every open space we see? It's the space for the spirit, my spirit. It's the greatest, it's the reminder of a place where I first felt like a woman solidly standing in my work, my greatest achievement. It's the space I'm holding open for myself and my own life to change my mind, rewrite the rules, to deeply honor my needs, even when it is inconvenient and calls for a dramatic renovation of what I know to be true. It's the space for the Holy Spirit, mine. It's the space to discover myself anew each day, to reclaim my body, my territory, to bloom in my own skin, on my own terms, and in my own right timing. In its permanency, I feel safety in my own trust deeper than I've ever felt anything before. In its thin, solid lines, I see the truth and the healing beneath the fantasy of briefcases and 401ks. I see the bravery that was required to shed that skin so that I could step into my own. I see... That though I am and have always been hardwired for survival, I can choose to survive on my own terms, thrive on my own terms. In this permanency, I am reminded of how I want to live, a spirited life with room for messiness and renegotiation. Mm. Thank you. When I first read this piece, I think it really spoke to me about the multifaceted work that you do, both as an intuitive and as a coach, guiding and sharing and working with women to reclaim their space and to to recognize the pieces that come into our story 
whether it's written or shared face-to-face or over the phone or by Skype, the pieces that come together to make us who we are and how we honor those pieces, but don't let them determine how we live our lives. You mentioned in this piece that you have a background, uh, you have an advanced degree and your background is as a social worker. And I'm curious how going through that process of getting your advanced degree had an impact on the work that you do now and the ways that you share your writing. Mm. It's so interesting because it, well, so I really wanted to move forward on this track and the old me, like the achieving ambitious, following the path of goodness uh, without questioning, sort of saw that that's what I wanted to do. And I thought to myself, like, oh, okay, well, you know, how can I make that work? And it's like, oh, well, you know, people who want to help other people, you know, become like therapists, right? Um, And so, so I kind of saw that as the only viable option if this were, you know, helping people was the track that I was to go on. And so, you know, I went to school, I very typical to form kind of Googled like best social work schools in the country, applied to the top five, you know, chose one and, uh, and, and set off on my merry way of major achievement. Because at that time, a core tenant in how I understood myself and my relationship with myself had to do with achievement and not just regular achievement, but know, high achievement, again, on anyone's standards. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in this story, somewhere in my story, uh, in my second year of school, I kind of, you know, I felt like the rising tide of panic and this real feeling of, okay, well, <laughs> well, if this is a lie, you know, like if this isn't the life that's planned for me, then I kind of can't trust anything that I've ever thought about what a good life is. Mm -hmm. And it was really fascinating for me. I mean, it was heartbreaking, but it was also fascinating. And, you know, so much of this transition had to do with how it was that I wanted to live. My social work education taught me that how I lived was more important than what I did. And I couldn't figure out how to live the way that I wanted to and be a social worker. And I'm sure that there are tons of people who do this very well, but all of the people who I most admired, my mentors in the program, my supervisors, the people who were doing the work that I wanted to do that I really admired were all really burnt out and um, really overwhelmed by the multitude of the work on their table. And I felt really guilty not moving forward on that path. I felt you know, that it was distinctly selfish for me to choose the quality of my own life over the work. But essentially, that's what the the decision was. And so, you know, in moving forward with my business and becoming a coach and doing this work as a guide and energy healer for women, I, in some ways, everything I do is fueled by the education that I've received. (laughs) And in other ways, 
you know, the everything I do is like the complete unlearning of everything that I learned and the education I received, mm-hmm. which is really interesting, right? I understand it from that kind of highbrow achieving perspective, but I also really believe in you know, theory for the people, Mm. like theory written in ways that we can understand it. And there are theorists who do this, you know, bell hooks is an amazing, amazing example. Um, there are theorists who do this, but not enough. And so, you know, a lot of my work became figuring out how to explain these kinds of concepts, these kinds of big ideas and these things that I was thinking about in a way that was really human and really had to do with claiming ownership of my own story and just expressing what was true for me in a way that my ego wasn't attached to it. You know, not, there aren't a lot of fancy, I mean, I do like big words, so there are some big words, but you know, I, I, endeavor to create things that are as accessible as possible to as many people Mm. as I can reach. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it's really heavily influenced by my education and in other ways it's like taking my education and putting it to the wayside so that, you know, so that I can honor my own truth. Um, because sometimes it felt really, or does still feel really difficult to do both at the same time. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things that I see as a thread that moves through all of your work is um, the idea of wild self-permission and learning how to take that on for ourselves as uh, women, as uh, independent business people, as entrepreneurs, as as people who are guided by spirit and intuition and not necessarily by the rules and structures that already exist. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what wild self-permission is for you and how that comes into your life on a daily, weekly regular basis? Mm, hmm Well, at some point, I realized that I was really sort of holding my breath and waiting for somebody to hand me like a blank permission slip to do all of the things that I wanted to do. And I think a lot of us do that, right? We, we kind of hedge our bets or we bide our time or you know, when I started my business, I got this really loud voice that let me know and know in certain terms that I was cutting to the front of the line, that I didn't have permission to do what I was doing because the way things worked was that, you know, you would get a job, work your way up the chain. And maybe when you had like somebody else said that you were good at what you do, then and only then could you become a consultant or start your own business, become an entrepreneur. And this idea that we don't have to wait for somebody else to grant us permission. We don't have to wait for the epiphany that drops down on our heads. And you know, we're able to move forward with much more freedom and ease from that point on is really intoxicating for me. Because really what it does is it takes the power out of the hands of everyone else around you, out of the sort of nameless, faceless entity of permission granting that we imagine exists in the world and hands it back to each and every one of us. And if 
each and every one of us are put on this planet to be solely responsible for the trajectory of our own lives, for taking responsibility for the trajectory of our own lives, and for really living in a way that is a good fit for us, which means honoring our own natural cycles and rhythms, uh, stacking the decks for us instead of against us. I mean, all of these things that we could so easily do, but don't because we feel like we have to do it everyone else's way. Mm -hmm. So what I love about the idea of permission is that (laughs) who said, right? Who said that we had to do that? Who said that we had to do things other people's way? And I think there's something so subversive to that. And it's amazing to see women start to work with permission because there's this massive trepidation And this like staunch belief that we are just not allowed to do that. And then it slowly makes way to like this giddiness, this curiosity. I'll never forget. One day I got this email from one of my clients and she said in all caps locks with like so many exclamation points, is it possible that everything I ever thought about how I'm supposed to do things is just a complete and utter lie and I can really just do whatever I want? And... (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that. Is, that's what I do. And the world hasn't fallen apart. You know, m- by large part, the people that I imagined would, you know, in my head imagined would like hate me if I dare to do things my own way still love me even when I trigger them a lot because I'm doing things my own way. <laughs> um, you know, like I haven't gone broke. I like all of the things that I thought would happen. So I'm so I just like was so married to the idea that everything was going to come crashing around or that somebody was going to come like pick me up and just say like, you can't do things like that. Like it threatens the world order. Um, And nobody cares. Nobody cares that I'm sitting in my house giving myself permission to eat chocolate for breakfast or, you know, work like these hours or take the whole day off or work on this project or like nobody cares what I'm doing. Mm. And it's amazing. And there's so much freedom in that. And I think that when we, you know, the freedom is real, but the fear on the other side of it is also real. So this is why I love to do this kind of work with women, because, you know, we can get so much further when somebody's holding our hand and we can say, I feel afraid. And, and, you know, I'm on the other end of the line thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to be afraid of here, but there's also a lot to be gained. Mm. And I just think that, you know, freeing yourself from all of the tethers that kind of, you know, nail you to the ground um, is the best, some of the best work that I know uh, for creating a life that really feels like it's yours. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of a line from Nina Simone that to me really embodies both the idea of self-permission and another concept phrase that you use, which is self-responsibility. Um, And Nina Simone sings, you have to learn to get up from the table when love is no longer being served. And to me, that this line is really about that responsibility to ourselves that we have, whether it is to our writing or to the work that we are called to do that seems big and scary and how do I take this leap to showing up in our relationships with ourselves and our partners and our families and our friends. It's 
it's really about recognizing and giving ourselves the permission to get up from the table, but also being responsible to know what's happening at the table and why we're still sitting there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And even getting ourselves to the table and asking to be served love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, I mean, I think that, you know, that's – it is just as important to ask for what you want as to, you know, excuse yourself from a situation where what you want is no longer an option. And for so many of us, the permission is so basic. It's around just even having the audacity to say out loud, like, I want to have this thing or this kind of life or this kind of relationship. And so many of us feel like, well, my life is all right. You know, it's fine. I mean, there's there's no obvious glaring issues that need solving. So who am I to ask for more? I hear that more often than anything else that like, well, if I were really honest, I have a good life, but I want a great life. And I feel really kind of shitty about that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's so interesting, right? What we even give ourselves permission to ask for. Mm-hmm. I mean, never mind having the, per- like giving ourselves the permission to have it or to receive it once it arrives, but even just the asking is so crucial. And I think too, when I think about my own work as a, a writer and as an editor and showing up to doing this work with other women, it's, For me, it's that point of I don't do this work because I think that I have all the answers. (laughs) I don't I don't come to this work as an editor because I'm a better writer than you are, because I'll be the first to admit that I'm probably not a better writer, but giving myself the permission to say This is where my heart exists. And it's okay to show up to a situation and say, yes, I actually know what I'm talking about right now. And allowing for that permission. I think there's so much energy in that. And and it allows it to move through me into the work. And I think there's that energetic flow in writing. And that movement that happens. And I see that when I read your work, there's this movement that happens. You take your readers on a journey. And it might be in multiple stages. It might happen all at once. But there's that movement. And I'm wondering how you tap into that energetic of moving through writing as you are sitting down to write and to share your words? Well, it's such an interesting question Um, because I'm currently writing a book, which I don't even know that you know, Um, but I'm currently writing a book and I'm thinking about that a lot because I find it really easy to do on a small scale with a blog post or an email, but the entire arc of a book feels just gigantic to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about this exact thing a lot and thinking about what feels kind of the most 
human and the most good to me right now. Mm-hmm. And a piece of what I do on a small scale, um, so book aside, but like when I'm posting on social media or I'm writing something and it's a smaller piece or an email, I always start with a question, what's being asked for here? Mm. And this is the intuitive piece, right? And it's one part my own information and one part just kind of opening myself up to the collective unconscious. So, you know, something that I read or heard about or seen people struggling with, um, people in my life, people that I'm connected to and, you know, social media, but kind of picking up on the narrative threads that seem to be showing up with regularity. And I try to address that. I try to just pick one thing that I'm hearing and address Mm -hmm. that. And so on a small scale, you know, it's really, it's kind of like a call and response. Like what's the question that needs to be answered and what can I create that would, you know, serve to, um, to provide a little bit of ease or a little bit of comfort or a little bit of just like balm for that feeling of this is my issue and nobody else struggles with this. Nobody else understands me. So on a small scale, that's what I do. And on a larger scale, um, you know, I keep kind of coming back to this like really the like grounding tether for me is if this person, if there was somebody sitting in front of me and I was talking to them about this, what would I say? Because at the core of everything is, you know, that piece that I talked about before about the theory, I want to talk to people in a way that they can really receive it, in a way that they can really understand it. Mm. And if left to my own devices, I get very, uh, like, esoteric in my writing. So I really try to remember that it's a conversation that I'm having and that there's another person on the other side. It's not just, like, me sort of thinking about you know the human condition or whatever, um, getting really involved in my own head, but thinking about it instead as a conversation and walking people along a path with me. Um, and so really taking time to focus on that human element in every bit of writing, like whether it's an Instagram caption or, you know, this larger work that I'm, I'm working on right now. Mm. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of of a lot of good writing is thinking about, I think for some, perhaps um, more so for fiction writers, it's thinking the concept of the audience. But I think for those of us who write personally, personal narrative, personal essay, creative nonfiction, thinking about that conversation is really important because one of the one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received is that um, I want to write the way that I speak and write the way that I'm having a conversation. And I'm and that's what I'm reminded of as I hear you talk about, you know, I'm in in having that conversation on a bigger scale to convey those ideas and those messages. I'm curious, what's the best advice you've ever received? So this advice 
isn't directly connected to my writing, but it totally influences everything that I do. And um, at one point, gosh, must be like three years ago now, I was talking to Nona Jordan, who is a money coach, and she was my coach for a while. She also does energy work. And I was talking to her about this feeling of responsibility for my little sisters and this feeling of like that, that kind of frenetic energy of, I feel like I should do something, but I don't know what to do. And really it's not my responsibility. Um, and I feel, so I feel just like bad all the time. And she asked me if anyone had ever protected me from the truth of my life. Like, had anyone ever swooped in to save me from myself? And I said, no. And then she asked if I would have wanted them to. Mm. And she really allowed me to see in that moment that my mistakes were mine to make. And without them, I wouldn't be the person that I am. I wouldn't have the things that I have. I wouldn't have the insight that I do. And that, so it's, you know, it's like about my sisters, right? And about how I show up and how I take responsibility for other people's stuff. But it also really helps the writing. Because when I think about having a conversation, you know, I'm not trying to save the other person on the other end of the page or the other end of the line or the other end of the call. That's not my job. Mm -hmm. You know, my job is to really hold space and inspire and like stoke their bravery so that they can withstand and learn from and be with whatever it is that they're going through. And for me, that piece of advice was really freeing because I kept, I held myself back from a lot of my creation because I felt that, you know, that false sense of responsibility. Like if I talk to you that I'm responsible for what you do next, or I need to be there for you, um, you know, or I'm going to write something online, then you're going to write me an email. And then, you know, I'm going to feel like I'm somehow um, responsible for your happiness, those kinds of feelings, which I think make creation very difficult. And that feeling of like, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted anyone to swoop in and save me. If they'd swooped in and saved me, I wouldn't have anything that I have now. And there's so much freedom in that. And so that, for me, really unlocked a piece of that conversation where I could trust the other person on the other end of the line, just like I could trust myself. And we could all kind of show up and take responsibility for ourselves, even when it's really hard. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) All right. Yes, it absolutely makes sense. And I think I personally, I love hearing this advice because it's a good reminder to me as um, as I'm working on a couple of memoir projects right now about particularly challenging times. Yeah, they were really terrible, awful, painful times. But the reminder that if someone had swooped in and saved me from those situations my life would probably be very different. And I can't say the ways that they that it would be different um, because it could have gone any number of ways. But to remember when I'm writing those stories that there was no savior. No one stepped in and took me out of that situation. 
But now when I'm writing about those situations and about my time in those situations, while not being a savior, I can recognize the situation and keep myself as I am now safe when I go back to the memories mm-hmm. and and be able to write through the hard stories without getting lost in them. Mm-hmm. One of the, um, I think it's one of the more hidden projects that you work on. Um, and I, I say hidden only because um, I don't hear you talk about it very often, but um, one of the things that you're working on that I really love is the Our Body Project. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that came to be and um, what that project means for you. Oh my God, Sarah, you went into the archives. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. So, so before I had a blog, even in 2007, I was um, in my senior year of college and I, I was uh, for, to graduate from my, my college, you had to write a sort of like a master's thesis. Um, And I wrote a 125 page memoir about my relationship with my body. And, uh, it was my first major piece of work. Uh, very few people have read it. It's one of the best things I've ever done. I loved it. Um, and I wrote it, you know, as on the basic tenant that when we spoke about our bodies, when we wrote about our bodies, when we shared these stories about our bodies, we would be free to be in just a little bit more ease in our relationships with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I, in finishing up that project, decided that I wanted to do something like a little, a little bit more, a community element, if you would. So I led a series of workshops for a group of, I guess like 12 women, and we wrote about our bodies and we created, um, we created these, you know, these pieces, these written pieces, nonfiction pieces about our bodies. And I created a performance, um, at my college in the spring, uh, that was based on the vagina monologues, which I had done and, you know, like helped facilitate for a couple of years prior to that. Mm-hmm. And so instead that year, instead of the vagina monologues, we had an event called the body monologues and we, um, a, the group of us and there were professors and, um, all kinds of, it was really, really fun. It was really great. Uh, did a reading of the pieces that we had written during the workshops that I ran. And a lot of those pieces from, that are on that page are from that time. And after that, I had some friends who lived far away who wanted to participate uh, or wanted to write their own pieces. So in the very beginnings of my website, I um, put some of those pieces online that we had written um, during that for those performances and also invited some other people to um, write pieces and submit them to me. And I would put them on my site as well. And it's really funny because nobody has ever asked me about it. Nobody has ever, nobody's ever talked to me about it at all. It's like this weird little like side thing that I did, which was really fun. And I do have it on my site. I mean, it's clearly visible there, but 
<laughs> Nobody ever asked me about it. And it was the beginning of this class. I took all of those writing exercises that we did. And for a couple of years, my very first e-course was called Body Loving Homework. And I took all of those exercises and I put it into that e-course. And um, it was really about, you know, improving your body image by using writing as a tool for self-exploration. Mm-hmm. I love that. I... um I, I, I'm kind of excited that I get to be the one to ask you about this um, because to me, um, reading these pieces is about so much more than just reading one person's story or experience about their body. Um, I, too, as an undergrad, uh, facilitated the vagina monologues at my school and remember the experience of um, profound awakening that I got to witness as the director of the show and watching people experience and learn those monologues, but really to personalize them and to make them their own. And so to expand that uh, idea to talk about all of our bodies And all of the pieces and the places that we may or may not talk about is um, really powerful to me. So I'm excited that I get to hear you talk about this. And I'm going to put a link to this, the Our Body Project, up on the blog post for this podcast so others can go and read those stories because they are really important and really meaningful ways of looking at and listening to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so funny, like even thinking back, because I know I two of the pieces on that site I wrote, and one of them is the first time I ever really, I performed it, and I performed it with a friend of mine, like my pieces about being femme and my one of my best friends from college, their pieces about being butch, and we performed them in tandem. And I had never, it was like about my body, but it was also so much about my sexuality and how and like rectifying my understanding of seeing myself as a feminine person in the world. And yeah, so I just, I love that you dug that up. (laughs) That's so fun. But just that idea of like, of of a, a more inviting picture of femme Mm -hmm. and that femme also that like how strong femme is Mm -hmm. um I think that when we I think that gets lost a lot I remember um I remember reading mini Bruce Pratt as an undergrad and just being like oh now I understand and I can like really call myself femme because she writes a lot about um, she has written a lot about femme as sort of our like femme foremothers of the 50s and 60s who were keeping the butch women that we love alive by being that safe place and being that home. And so whether our butch women are passing or simply just living 
a life that doesn't fit the mold of female mm-hmm. for femme women to be that home and that strong, safe place. And I think that gets lost a lot when we talk about femme. Anyway, <laughs> that's my tangent about femme. I was thinking about it as I, as I was getting ready um, to talk to you today about like that identity and and identity politics and how that comes into into play as women and as writers and how we navigate those stories and share and um, I think for us as public facing people, right, as um, coaches and uh, people who work one-on-one with others, but we, you know, we have this very public online presence, the identity politics that surround it and how do we navigate what we share and what we don't share and how much we disclose and what's public facing and what's public facing to our clients and so it's a I was thinking a lot about about that as I got ready for mm-hmm. this, you know, and and where those where those things exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah. And like more truth. Because like truth for me it's like truth equals freedom. If I can be brave enough to say absolutely everything to everyone without hesitation, I am free. Mm-hmm. And you know, that includes my writing and like my social media presence and all of that kind of stuff. Like I, it's so funny. I had a really good friend recently be like, let's just get together and we'll tell all of our secrets. I'm like, I don't have any secrets from you. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? None. I'm like, no, I, I literally do not have secrets anymore mm. because for so many years I had so many. And now I've written about every single one, at least one other person, if not a bajillion, have read every single thing. And it's like I can just shake it all off because some of it's super painful, you know? I mean, it's not all beautiful, obviously, but it's not a secret. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I don't keep it quiet. And for me, that's like the best practice in just being free and being and feeling like, I don't know, because I always had that feeling before of like, well, what did I tell this person and that person and how much can I share? Or what are they going to think about me? Like super managing other people's reactions to me, mm-hmm. which was a full-time job. Let me tell you. It really is. <laughs> and I think um, for me in my writing, there's um, – I find that comes true a lot in uh, I'm reminded of a quote and I don't remember the exact word wording, but the gist of it is that if you're always telling the truth, then you don't have to worry about what you have told each individual person because the story will always be the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that, in writing, that also comes to play when we are particularly writing nonfiction pieces and and writing memoir because we're telling this story and it has a consistency. And so the story that we tell in our writing is the same story that we have told our friends and our neighbors and our partners and and anyone who's already heard pieces of the story. They will all 
align. And that, I think, makes our writing so much stronger because there is that thread of continuity that runs through all of it. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it's so interesting because, like, with my, like, this ferocious, ferocious truth project that I'm, like, working on right now, every single time I go to post it, it's not the people on the internet. I don't feel a single bit of anything. Like, those people on the internet, like, love me. It's, like, the people that I see, I'm like, oh, shit. Well, that person, like, sees me in the grocery store, and I know they follow me on Instagram. <laughs> like, oh, or, like, that person's, like, the, my real-life friends who I really know already really like me. I do not want them to see my truth, mm-hmm. which is very compelling for me. I find that very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, make myself kind of do it because... I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to feel like I have any kind of like sneaky weird little truths. Um, But yeah, it's so fascinating that project in particular, because it's like, I notice myself wanting to not tell the truth or not. Mm -hmm. I don't know, not be so public, Um, but not with the world at large with like the five people who live in my town, (laughs) which is very funny. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that comes to pass with with whether it's a snippet of truth or a body of work, a, a full body of work, mm-hmm. is that idea of um, the layer. There's sort of that um, like two-way mirror or one-way mirror between mm-hmm. ourselves and the people on the internet because they see what we show them, but they can't really see what's on the other side in our real lives. And the people who are in our real lives are seeing all the parts of us that both show up on the screen and not. I I hear a lot of people who talk about making the transition between, um, you know, leaving a corporate job or leaving working for someone else and becoming self-employed and doing this really heart-centered work, which they've been building on the internet, but hadn't fully been able to make the transition into that full life experience. And I hear people talk about how they can make their internet life their real life. And I wonder where the balance is there. And I think it comes back to that uh, self-permission of saying it's okay for me to be exactly who I am on the internet and while we're sitting across the table sharing a mug of tea. Mm -hmm. It's completely okay for me to be all of that. Because I think we find when we're not living that really integrated self, we're out of alignment and we don't have that same authenticity. And, And it's less about, I think, being multifaceted beings, because I think it's, I think there's the space for being multifaceted. But at the same time, having all of our facets be aligned and, and having that core of authenticity and integrity that runs through us. hmm Yeah. Absolutely. That's my favorite compliment on planet Earth is when people meet me and they're like, you're exactly how you are online. Mm. Like, well, thank you. I really work hard for that. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's there is nothing more disconcerting than meeting somebody and they're totally different than they are online, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think that that piece, you know, like really giving yourself permission to be who you are, wherever you are, whenever you are, and not um, doing that that people-pleasing thing where you're a chameleon for whatever space you're in, which was totally my jam. I was really, really good at that. You know, really good at being exactly what you, whoever you are, wanted me to be. Like knowing that innately and morphing myself into it before, you know, two blinks of an eye. Mm-hmm. And so not doing that, making the, a concerted effort to resist my own innate impulse to do that is really, really, really important for me. And that includes, you know, any kind of work, um, any kind of writing online, um, the books that I'm writing, all of the pieces, it's like really working to, uh, keep that consistency and that consistency, which is just like, you know, the naturalness of who I am. Um, and not, not trying to make it sound like something else or make it, you know, be any which way. I'd really love to give you the opportunity to share some wisdom with listeners, a piece of your work or your truth that you would like to share directly with them. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, to continue on a lot of the threads that we've been talking about today, that there are a couple of really important pieces here. And the first is giving yourself the permission as many times as you need it to show up as you are in every facet of your life. And the really crucial piece here is at the as many times as you need it, because for some of us, myself included, this could happen once a day, five times a day, once a minute, Uh, there are moments when I feel deeply uncertain or insecure or afraid, and I need to give myself that reminder constantly. And instead of judging ourselves, right, instead of judging ourselves for being blessedly human and exactly as we are, we can just extend that permission to the permission granting process as well. And really just allow for that to be an open conversation. And like, um, I think about it kind of like when I was a kid, I read this thing by Janine Roth, which was about how to teach a kid to eat intuitively. I was a really overweight kid. My mom was really worried about my weight and blah, blah, gave me Janine Roth books for like Easter for, you know, my seventh birthday or whatever. (laughs) Um, And I remember there was this one story about this kid that the the Janine Roth told the mom to give her like a pillowcase full of her favorite food. Her favorite food was Skittles. To give her like a pillowcase full of Skittles. And that's what would teach the kid how to eat intuitively. And the mom, of course, was like horrified by this advice. Like, I'm not going to give my fat kid a pillowcase full of Skittles. Like thought that was the worst idea on planet Earth. But sure enough, you know, did it. And by like day two, the kid realized that eating endless Skittles didn't feel good, Um, you know, and naturally just sort of started to reach her hand into the Skittle pillowcase whenever she really wanted it and not when she didn't. Mm. And so I mentioned that because I think that when we give ourselves love and permission and support and an encouragement, we may unwittingly have ourselves on like a bit of a restriction plan like a diet, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a diet of love. And we don't have to do that, right? Like 
we can just give ourselves the metaphorical pillowcase full of Skittles, the Skittles being kind words that we tell ourselves whenever we need to hear it. And we can allow ourselves to reach in there whenever we want and to reassure and to feel the love and to feel supported. One of the best ways to allow ourselves to be created, creative and allow ourselves to feel good on a daily basis and allow ourselves to have that permission is to really be generous with ourselves around our own inner dialogue and our own inner landscape and like allowing ourselves to reach our hand into that Skittles, which is love kind of pillowcase as often as we need to, because you may not just want to hear it, need to hear it once a day. You may need to hear it five times a day. And I think that there's a piece of the generosity and a piece of the showing up for ourselves and the piece of feeling like I am in relationship with my life that is really healing and energetically allows us to create from a really open place of feeling loved and supported, even if it's loved and supported by our own selves. Um, and that there's really a lot of merit in doing that, a lot of good feeling in doing that. That's so good and such great advice to remember just every moment of the day. <laughs> so funny. I was like not at all going to go there. And there's just something about that little girl with the Skittles that Mm -hmm. gets me every time. Because it's like the mom, you can just hear because you're both, right? Mm -hmm. You're the mom who's like, no more Skittles for you. You've had enough Skittles. Like you need to work on yourself, harness yourself, get yourself into shape or whatever, pull yourself together, get it done. <laughs> and then like the like sweet, soft part of yourself that's like, I'm a kid. I'm like, I love Skittles. So, <laughs> so yes. what is the issue? And in your relationship with yourself, you are both the mom and the kid, mm-hmm. you know? And like, it's so great. And it's so healing in our relationship with ourselves to just give ourselves that permission. Like, all right, you need love, you need support, you need whatever. What do you need? And to get into that place of that intuitive flow where we ask for what we need when we need it and we allow ourselves to have it so we don't have that feeling of like being like a bundle of unmet needs, mm-hmm. you know, or like starved for the Skittles. Yes. Um, that we can just kind of take it as we want it, leave it when we don't, and it becomes a really natural give and take. Amar, it's been so great to have you on the show today. If people want to learn more about you and the work that you do, they can visit your website, which is maraglatzel.com. I just want to say it's been fantastic talking with you, and I'm really looking forward to reading more of your writing and your book when it's time. Mm, thank you. I'm so, so happy to have been here today. Thank you so much for asking me. It was a great conversation. You have been listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. For more information about this and all of our episodes, please visit in-her-room.com. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Thank you for listening.